0: annual membership to exit five that's valued at 275 dollars just for checking them out and the tool is free if you're not already a member this is a great opportunity and if you are and you want to learn more go to apollo.io slash e5 this episode of the exit five podcast is brought to you by zapier zapier is an awesome company and i'm thrilled that they're sponsoring exit five They are one of the secret go-to tools, maybe not so secret anymore, that I've seen B2B SaaS marketers use over the years, and I'm thrilled to have them as a sponsor. Zapier is easy automation for everyone by connecting with more than 5,000 of the most popular apps B2B marketers are using, like Salesforce, HubSpot, Slack, literally thousands more. Zapier lets you automate almost anything you can think of without writing code, which is especially good for people like me. And with Zapier's easy to use workflow templates, you can start saving time and impressing your boss fast. More than 2 million businesses automate their tasks with Zapier, including top brands like Shopify, Airtable, Dropbox, HubSpot, Zendesk, and more. They choose Zapier to streamline their work, save money, and find more time for what matters most. And that's more important now than ever. That's the reason why Zapier rhymes with happier. Bet you didn't know that. Now you know how to say it the right way, too. Every day, Zapier customers save more than $10,000 in time per year. With Zapier, you can move new leads into your CRM. You can automatically reach out to new leads, get Slack notifications for important emails, auto-generate emails with personalized content based on form inputs, seamlessly synthesize data from multiple sources, reduce human error, and increase accuracy. You can try Zapier for free. That's one of the best things about it. Go to zapier.com backslash exit five, one word. That's zapier, Z-A-P-I-E-R.com forward slash exit five. Zapier.com forward slash exit five.
1: One, two, three, four. Exit. Five. Exit. Exit. exit.
0: exit. exit. Okay, this is long awaited. I got an intro to you from my friend, Tom Wentworth, who I guess you're an advisor in a company of his, the company did well or something like that. He said he should go on your podcast. <laughs> so I am glad you're here. I posted about this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the microphone in a minute because I want you to introduce yourself and give your background. But I just want to I posted about you coming on this podcast in the Exit 5 community uh, recently and uh, the reaction was uh, somebody wrote, oh my God, for real. Another person wrote, best blog ever. I read it all the time. Someone another said, oh shit, you're talking to the goat. Another person said, huge fan of Dave Kellogg. Another one said, great guest. Another one said, pumped. So, we haven't even done the interview yet and I know this is going to be one of the most popular episodes of all time. So, Dave Kellogg, thank you for taking the time out to come on the Exit 5 podcast. I've been a secret admirer. Your blog has... Saved me in advance of many board meetings and <laughs> and marketing leadership meetings over the year. and I know I'm not alone in that, so I'm, I'm glad to have you on
1: well, it's awesome. Thanks for having me here and uh, now I hate playing into high expectations, right? as a good marketer, I like to keep expectations low, but uh, it seems like we can't do that in this case all right. So
0: for people who aren't super familiar with you and your story, give me the condensed overview of who you are and and what your uh, career path has been. You've been CEO, you've been CMO, you have a unique perspective on things, but uh, how do you tell us? And just with the caveat that majority of this audience is gonna be in your wheelhouse, B2B SaaS marketers and, and execs.
1: Okay, so I'll do the quick chronological telling because I think it, it gives you the context. So self-taught programmer, math and geophysics major at Berkeley, wandered into the software business because I knew how to program. Started in technical support at a database company. So telling people how to write SQL queries, watched that company get thumped by Oracle. uh, And everyone said we were losing because of sales and marketing. So like, well, what's sales and marketing? So so I got interested in sales and marketing, moved over to competitive analysis, then product marketing, got an MBA on nights and weekends, ran marketing at one startup, ran marketing at business objects on kind of an epic run from 30 million in revenue to a billion in revenue. Wanted to try my hand at CEO, so I ran a Sequoia-backed company called MarkLogic uh, for six years, from zero to eighty million in revenue, and then did a year at Salesforce as GM of Service Cloud, and then was CEO of Host Analytics, a financial planning company. Took that from eight million to fifty million ARR and sold it. Along the way, I've been writing the blog for nearly twenty years at this point, and I've sat on about ten different boards of directors. So I like to position myself as having three views, kind of ten years of the CMO seat. 10 years in the CEO seat and 10 years in the 10 kind of combined years in the director seat.
0: Awesome. Important tangent just for me out of curiosity before we get into the good stuff. Tell me about your, the origin of your blog. You got into the blog 20 years ago before all this stuff happened. Like what, what got you into blogging?
1: Yeah. So at the time I was CEO of uh, Mark Logic. And we sold an XML database system to two communities, I say spies and publishers. Uh won't talk about the spies, but the the publishers used us for content repurposing. And they were under threat by the internet, by the web, and by the new coming generation of publishing. Blogging was part of that. So I actually started the blog as an effort to kind of walk in my customer's footsteps so I could kind of comment intelligently on new media that was threatening old media. So that's how it started. I was originally called the Mark Logic CEO blog. And then one day I was wandering uh, the halls at Sequoia and Mike Moritz looked up to me and said, ah, the Kell blog. <laughs> and I went, oh, that's a good name. And uh, since my wife is French and I've lived in France and I'm a Francophone, Kelblog is actually a homophone for what a blog in French. So it, it's kind of funny. But in any case, that's the story. I love it. Do you think you'll uh, continue
0: to blog or is one it, can we just create like a um, Dave Kellogg Chat GPT program and someone can just write this on your behalf and you can go retire somewhere?
1: So I played around with that and I didn't do very well because I'm not very good at prompting. But I had a friend who's using Chat GPT 4. And uh, he put some more time into it. And it still don't feel like I'm out of business. But but I, I had this crazy question, which is, what if Dave Kellogg talked to Kurt Vonnegut? What would they talk about? <laughs> I just wanted to see what it would do. <laughs> and uh, my friend actually prompted it enough. So it was a pretty interesting conversation. It's up there as a blog comment on a blog post. But uh, I think I'm safe for now. I, I don't know for how many years more, but but for now, we're OK.
0: I love that. All right so you have you have these three you've had an amazing career impressive run across CEO CMO start off as a programmer today we're going to talk mostly to CMOs and so a lot of people listen to this podcast want to be either they are CMOs now and they're listening because it's just the part of their routine and staying sharp or they want to become a CMO today and I'm curious to hear your perspective about what makes a great CMO, and I know that is a that's a vague question, but I I'm trying not to lead the witness here. Just as somebody who comes at it from this angle and cares about revenue and thinks about things from the CEO level, tell me about a what does a world class CMO look like to you?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I want to give you a four part answer. I think one is I write about a lot. It's a great partner to sales. So I would say, you know. It was Literally like 1987, I was at a marketing all hands meeting and our CMO said, marketing's job is to make sales easier. And I like reductionist little pithy maxims. So I was like, ooh, that's good. I like that. I want I want to stick with that big sales easier thing. And I basically rode that maxim to CMO-ness and a successful career as a CMO. So I always said... The other way to look at it is I worked at a really small startup once, and and the the VP of sales made a t-shirt that said, code, sell, or get out of the way, (laughs) which kind of (laughs) frames the mission of marketing. I love it. (laughs) It's like, like I've worked at small startups. If you have a 10-person startup, you're not going to have any marketing, right? You're going to have people building the product and people selling the product. So if you kind of derive marketing from first principles, it says, we got to make this stuff easier to sell. And, And there's a whole host of ways of doing that, some of which are super strategic. Like inputting on product strategy or ideal customer profile or distribution strategy, some of which are super tactical, like executing a trade show really well and finding the right leads. Right. So, but, but you can drive it all for making sales easier. So, that, so the first to me is we got to partner with sales. The second, actually, I'm going to reduce the answer to three things to be a dispassionate analyst. I don't know how to say it, but just to show up with the data and say our stage two to close rate is 5%. I can tell you industry benchmarks, they run more 15 to 20. For this company, in this space, at this time, with these opportunities, I don't know if five is bad or good. doesn't strike me as particularly good, frankly. But I do know what it does to my marketing funnel, which is if you're only going to close 5% of these, I need to generate a huge number of them, and it's going to cost us a lot of money. So because I'm trying to put a very difficult issue on the table right? Because the wrong way in that example to say, well, sales can't sell anything, right? Sales can't close. I'm not the problem. I hit my sales goal and sales can't sell. And that doesn't help anybody, right? So I think the art of the dispassionate observer or the anchor man, the dispassionate analyst, really, not observer, or what you might call the anchorman or the anchor person on TV, hey, I don't make the news. I just tell you about it, right? <laughs> like we've got a 5% stage two to close rate. Maybe, by the way, sales ops could do that for me, but, but we need to talk about it dispassionately and kind of remove the emotion and say, how do we want to do better? Do we think five is good enough? Benchmarks would suggest it's not. If you think it is, great. But otherwise, how do we do better? And leading those conversations is super important. I'm giving you a simple example, but it could be marketing channel analysis. It could be sales pipeline sourcing analysis. These issues get hot fast. So first thing is partner with sales. Second, kind of dispassionate analyst. And the third is a partner to the CEO, which actually might be redundant to the second. (laughs) But I have to assume in this day and age that the CEO comes from a product background. So they understand neither sales nor marketing, really. And I need to explain it to them and I need to lead them to understand what it is we do in marketing and how we work with sales. All right.
0: This is great. I take a lot of notes during these and I come back to different things. There's, there's lots of things that I I want to come back to already. I also love that you gave us the rule of threes on the fly. We have a great memorable list. What makes a great CMO? We have great partner to sales, dispassion analysts, and a partner to the CEO. I want to talk about each one of these for a second. So on being a great partner to sales... First of all, I love that you said this line in 1987, marketing's job is to make sales easier because we now live in an era where somebody like me, I was born in 1987. I can now, I get to go to LinkedIn now and I get to write that pithy line. Marketing's job is to make sales easier. And everyone comments like, oh my God, this is amazing. But, but Dave Kellogg is there in 1987, taking this from a different CEO at the time. So, it's just another example of how Everything that's new is old. It it always comes back to the the first principle of marketing's job is to make sales easier. On this concept of being a great partner to sales, when you say it like that, I'm like, it sounds obvious. Great. But so many of the comments that I see in the Exit 5 community or even in in my career, various, I was a CMO twice and had different levels of relationships with the sales partners. Why do you think there is such a disconnect between... It's not as easy as this. And it's oftentimes like the sales leader is not ready to be like, yes, Dave Kellogg's here as CMO. I can't wait to partner with him. There often is a disconnect. And my perspective is it often comes down to misalign metrics and incentives. But why is it harder to be a great partner to sales than, you know, we can say it quickly in a pithy way on this podcast. But when you get inside of a company, it doesn't always work that way.
1: So look, it's a great point. And a not terribly well-known thing is in... 2020, I actually did a nine month, almost 11 month, so was nine or 10 month interim CMO gig. So after the last time I was a CMO was 2004, right? So you might think, oh, Dave's a little dated on this stuff. He's been a CEO and board member since. But I actually sat in the chair for almost a year in 2020. And the first thing I did was bomb with sales right? And at some point, the CEO was yelling at me like, why are you and Tim so aligned on everything? it's like, have you ever read my blog? Like I'm doing exactly (laughs) what I said I would do, right? Which is to interlock with sales. And we kind of speak with one voice. So, but to answer your question, I think there's a couple of reasons why it's hard. One is just an experience. Not a lot of sales and marketing people kind of bond themselves together and approach the CEO as a, we're one person, another old movie reference, but, uh, all the president's men, Woodward and Bernstein, their editor started calling them Woodstein, right? Uh, <laughs> they were one conceptual be. person. Yeah. That's what I want the VP of sales and the VP of marketing to be, right? Woodstein. So and it's hard to do, but a lot of people have an experience with it. So one is it just say so people haven't experienced it very much. It takes two to tango. They don't necessarily know how to dance, right? That's one. The next reason is trust. I mean, a lot of marketing people know to say the right thing, but they don't actually do it right? And salespeople are like super high EQ. So if you're kind of bluffing them or BSing them or kind of pretending or kind of bowing to the, oh, yeah, we want to help sales flag, but off running big branding campaigns or doing stuff that marketing likes to do, as opposed to what sales has asked for, they're going to look at you and go, big hat, no cattle, right? I mean, you talk a good game, but when you place your chips on the table, when you spend marketing money, when you hire people, I don't see it. I don't see the alignment that you're talking about. And the last would be, it is often the CEO's fault. I mean, I have worked with companies, you know, just to pick a very old, old example that's shockingly still happens today. But the CMO is going, I got all the sequels or sales, whatever you want to count, go marketing, we're awesome. And sales hates them, thinks they're not the right leads, not closing them, right? That still happens. And I was talking to a company and I literally looked at the CEO and I was like, you know whose fault this is? Cause I had all three of them in the room. And I look at it, and go, yeah, grab a mirror, pal. <laughs> it's your fault. Because you're telling the marketing person that you want them to be aligned with sales, but you're not measuring them on opportunities or revenue. Right. You're measuring them on sales or sequels. Shame on you. Right. So definitely part of it. The CMO has a boss. And if the boss is a CEO, just like any
0: other part of the org, that the boss has goals and benchmarks and comp based on those things. And so if my comp plan is based on the me generating a bunch of SQLs, like then my boss, the CEO is gonna think I'm I'm doing a good job. I, I was gonna follow up this question with like, seems to come back to metrics, right? Which is like, do we have a shared view of like company goal? What is sales own? What is marketing own? I think it's hard and part of the disconnect in in B2B SaaS is there's a blurry line between like what sales is responsible for and what marketing is responsible for. And so the metrics kind of make it a bit messy. What have you found to be the best, simplest like unifying metric? Is it marketing owns opportunities? Yeah.
1: So two things. One, on the prior point, I'm going to give some risky advice, which sometimes works. I'm not going to claim this always works because sometimes it's a no-win situation. But if you're a CMO and the CEO says to go right and the CRO says to go left, what do you do? And the answer to me is go left. (laughs) And it may sound crazy, but but I've seen enough CMOs die on the other hill because the instinct is to go right. Hey, the CEO told me to go right. I'm going right. The CEO will have my back. Sales will be unhappy, but the CEO will take care of me. And that doesn't work because what happens is if the CEO is not aligned with sales and you do what the CEO wants, it'll work for a while. You'll be their favorite employee for a few months, but sales will be increasingly complaining about what you're doing to the point where sales is coming for your head to the CEO. And the CEO will go, okay, sorry, we'll get rid of them. So I know it doesn't work. I mean, look, there are exceptions to this, but in general, I say go left. Here's, here's the counter derivation. If you go left and work with sales, and actually help the company hit the number, first, there's no problem because we're hitting our number (laughs) because we're working together. And second, sales will have my back. If the CEO goes, I can't stand the CMO and never does what I want, you go, sales would be like, whoa, 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 no, they're doing exactly what I want. So I think it's a really hard situation for a CMO. But I think you need to understand if you're in a subtle misalignment, because these things aren't as simple as left and right, right? They tend to be subtle. But if you're in one, step one, get the three of them together and say, I feel... Misaligned. In fact, I once had a direct report tell me, he goes, do you know why the asteroid belt exists? And I go, I don't know why. He goes, there used to be a planet in between Jupiter and Mars, but it got torn apart by gravity. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> he goes, that's what I feel like right now. I'm an asteroid belt. You guys are tearing me to bits. I love this advice. I
0: love, love, love this advice because it it is not traditional, but it's like, I just love, I love simple, very clear advice. Like it's like when you go to the doctor, I don't like when your doctor's like, well, you could do this and you could do that and you could take that. No, no, tell me what to do. And I think what you just gave people is a actual recipe of something to do, which is if you zoom all the way out, if you hit the revenue number,
1: almost everything is going to be fine. <laughs> Revenue cures all known ailments, as they say, right? Um, So, totally. It's counterintuitive, which is why I belabor it. Now, to answer your question about metrics, I, I personally think the right way to measure marketing and enterprise B2B SaaS when it comes to the demand generation part of marketing is stage two opportunity count, believe it or not. Not pipeline dollars um not stage one opportunities but what i call stage two opportunities actually looked at by an ae and accepted um because at some point sales needs to be accountable right sales doesn't get to play the game of they were low quality which is their low quality why'd you accept it right so so to me you get what i call the marketing is the stage two manufacturing facility and sales is the stage two closing facility and if sales has accepted an opportunity They need to be willing to be held accountable for a close rate of somewhere between, in my opinion, 15 and 25% of those opportunities. But but what I'm trying to do is get rid of the finger pointing. And the most obvious finger pointing place is, oh, they hit their number, but they were low quality. And and we solve that through the acceptance process. If it's low quality, reject it. And if you're rejecting a lot, we're going to challenge you on that. So stage, and, and the other, just to be quick, I don't like pipeline dollars because it's too skewable. What either encourages using placeholder values early in the sales cycle or, you know, marketing can actually miss their goals significantly, but $1 million Opti can offset mm. that. So That's I actually great. prefer count. Yep.
0: And this seems like something that can't just be done in a spreadsheet or in a Salesforce dashboard. It seems to be that to have this, you need to be sales leadership and marketing need leadership need to be like actively working on this together on a week by week basis and talking about these things. And so it's not just like, I'm looking at some report of what was accepted or not. We're going to have a conversation about this criteria because things will ebb and flow. Sometimes marketing will be doing a great job and sometimes they will not. And sometimes sales will be doing a great job. And so you have to have that kind of weekly rhythm of like if you're reviewing stage two opportunities is it a sales issue is it a marketing issue has to be this it has to be kind of this shared relationship do you have a rough way of how you like to actually make this real like how do you enforce this how do you build alignment do you meet on it weekly what's the process
1: so i think the right answer is to have sales and marketing leadership meet weekly.
0: Hey, so I created Exit 5 to help you build a successful career in B2B marketing. First, it started off as my private podcast on Patreon and many of you who listen to this today probably are OGs and remember that. I was talking about my lessons and learnings going from PR intern to CMO. Then it morphed into a Facebook group and quickly became one of the top resources for marketers in B2B SaaS. Today, this is a full-blown company. We have three full-time employees and ambitions to grow the team and keep building and hire more people this year. And we're investing in everything that's working, which right now is everything. It's, Amazing. We're making a big update to our community. We're doubling down on this podcast to serve the 5,000 people that listen every week. We're investing in our newsletter and written content to help the 16,000 people that get our emails. We're even hosting our first in-person event in September. We're building Exit 5 to help you grow your career in B2B marketing because really there's no school for B2B marketing. You can't get a degree in how to build pipeline and there isn't a playbook for how to get promoted in your career. And That's why I'm telling you right now to go and join the Exit 5 community. Go to exit5.com. You can click join right there. There's a free seven-day trial. So If you're listening to this podcast, if you are one of those 5,000 people that listen to this podcast every single week and you have not joined our community yet, go and do that. At least go and check out the seven-day free trial. You'll sign up. You'll put your credit card in, but we don't bill you until seven days. It's a seven-day free trial and... This is, this is really Dave. We really do all of this. I want to build a company that is customer friendly. And that means that if you sign up, And two weeks into this thing, you realize it's not for you. You can email us and cancel. But I want you to go check it out. It's a seven-day free trial. Go to exit5.com. You can get in our community and you'll see why it's so much more than just a discussion forum. Exit 5 is a B2B marketing resource that's there for you when you need it the most. When your boss comes to you and says, hey, we need you to come up with an ABM strategy for this year and you've never done that before, you go to Exit 5 and you ask that question or you go and search the hundreds of posts before you. When you want to look for a new job but you're not ready to post about it on LinkedIn yet, you can quietly browse for open roles and see who's hiring inside of exit five, or maybe you need to build a peer group of other people in your job function, but LinkedIn is too broad to dig through. You can find out who else works in product marketing in your niche or who else, who else is a director in the $1 million, to $10 million company range. You can do that inside of exit five. Maybe you want freelance, maybe you you need to make a video in a pinch and you need recommendations for a freelance videographer that can work on your next product launch video and they're located in the US and within your range of budget. That is why we built Exit 5 and that's what you can go in there and do. So go and check it out, exit5.com, start a free trial and we'll see you inside of the community.
1: To discuss handoffs because that handoff point is critical, right? Like once it's a stage two and sales has accepted it, they're pretty much accountable for closing it so the marketing conversation is how can I help, right? Hey, I've noticed after the demo, the conversion rate is low. Do you want a new demo, right? Do you do, or I noticed we get stuck on financial viability. So he wants to build an ROI model, right? I can help you all the way to the closed deal and thereafter, but it's, there's a difference between I'm your helper kind of riding shotgun, and I'm driving, which is in the high funnel, the, the tofu, right? I'm driving. So to me, the handoff point is important because I switch roles. It's not that I don't have any roll down funnel. It says I, I switch the shotgun. And up funnel, I think the answer is the handoff point matters enormously because it's just so hard. I don't know how to say it, but what can go wrong at the handoff point? A, we can get inundated, right? Right where we just, we go to a big trade show and have a ton of leads and we get behind, right? Now we're not calling people back and we need help. What else can happen? There's what I call a floating bar, which is starving reps tend to accept low-quality opportunities, and reps who already have 15, 17, 20 opportunities tend to reject good ones. So we need to be watching, right? Because, you know, God didn't declare that we were gonna generate opties in the exact distribution needed by sales, (laughs) let alone the right number, but basically what I'm coming down to is distribution. Right. Because after we run all the marketing and after we hit our opti per quarter goal, who knows if the Chicago sales rep has enough opportunities? Or the New York one is carrying 34 and can't possibly call them all back. And the Chicago rep has seven and is working on two total non starters because it's better to work on something than work on nothing. Right. And that's why it has to be so close. And we need obviously we watch that rejection rate because get you get a lot of information on that but you also listen to Gong Calls, Chorus, Jiminy, whatever your tool is, just go listen. So to me, it's like a weekly meeting where we just sit down and talk about the handoffs. It's the same thing I do with partners where we have a weekly meeting to say, okay, or services, sorry, services and partners, but where we say, this opportunity needs some services. Do do we want our team to do it or our partner's team to do it? And opportunity by opportunity. You can just go through the pipeline. In some sense, you do the same thing at the handoff point because I agree with you. The answer is not in a spreadsheet here. The answer is on the ground and it's, it's not in the averages, really. And the spreadsheets tend to present the averages.
0: And then you can, that's a great framework to then go and present a united front to the rest of the, the team. And hey, here's what we're doing. This is the revenue team. Okay, number two on your list of what makes a great CMO is the art of being a dispassionate analyst. And I love this. And go back to the example that you talked about and having a 5% close rate. I do think it is, I've made this mistake. Many people that I talk to, we instantly go into defensive mode Right, where I'm going gonna, gonna to present to the leadership team about why we're behind on this number and here's all the excuses and reasons. But what you said when you positioned this way being the dispassionate analyst, you made me think of this, which is an important lesson that I've had to remind myself of. You as the CMO, you often have to cook the dish. You have to make this amazing meal, but you don't own all the ingredients. <laughs> you know, you don't control sales. You don't control product. You don't control the market or the roadmap or this partner or that partner. And so, I think when you can take the lens of being a dispassionate analyst you're then presenting more as the hey, this is uh, I'm the manager of this portfolio, and I I want to rally the company, and I want to get your help. It's like when you go in there with on the defensive of like, here's why we're at this number, and here's here's all these 15 excuses. I just would love to hear you talk about that perspective a little bit more.
1: Yeah, super. Look, I think I developed this perspective because I'll tell you why I developed it. It's an interesting story. Um, it was a long time ago. I was at Business Objects. We ran the company on geographic P&Ls. And we'd have this problem where the French were pretty unaggressive, so they, they planned to grow at 30% and grow at 32 and the Italians were really aggressive. They planned to grow at 70% and grow at 65 And every meeting, the French were heroes and the Italians were zeros, right? Because the French were making plan and the Italians are missing plan, despite the fact the Italian absolute growth rate is twice that of the French. And, and these are not the actual numbers, but to, uh, highlighted to dramatize the idea. And I went, this is messed up. I, I mean, I understand that making plans important, but the Italians are growing twice as fast as the French. And we're kind of giving medals to the French and, and kind of you know dissing the Italians. What, what are we going to do about this? So I created a, a local market share chart. At the time, you could actually just kind of map. Basically, I mapped our growth to our competitors' growth in each of those countries. And, and basically, you take your, your revenue and divide by, divide everyone's revenue by your revenue. So your line is always flat. And then anybody who's coming up is gaining relative share. Anyone who's coming down is losing relative share. So I call it the relative market share chart. I would just be the dispassionate observer. I didn't have to give a speech about gaming plan performance or plan negotiation or all the stuff that I actually thought was happening. <laughs> that like, wow, the French are better negotiators because they negotiate a really low plan. And our, you know, our well-intentioned Italians are terrible negotiators. So instead, I just put the data up, the dispassionate. That's where I got the dispassionate from, because that's a very unpleasant thing to tell a management team. Everyone's celebrating because most of the people made their numbers. And you're like, folks, we might be making our numbers, but we're losing relative market share in three countries. And you could just see it right there. So what do we want to do about it? And, And I think why I say the dispassionate analyst is, I just present the fact. I never say why, and I never say what to do about it. I present the fact and say, do we think this is a problem, yes or no? And then once you get agreement on a problem, if somebody goes, what can marketing do to solve it? Let's take a different example now. Say it's that stage two to close rate that's too low. Do we agree that 5% is too low, yes or no? Because if we don't agree it's a problem, no point in fixing it. And then if we agree it's too low, the dispassionate person, well, what can marketing do to fix that? 15 things. And there is no right answer. The right answer is the one I agree to with the CRO, period. That's the right answer. So if you take that point of view, it says, we, we basically, I'm going to be a dispassionate analyst. I'm going to present facts. We're going to agree there's some things we don't want to fix and some things we do. And as a good marketing person, you've got a thousand tricks in your bag. So there is no right answer. The right answer is the one that I agree with my CRO to go execute. And that is super powerful, and that's what keeps you aligned because that's how you avoid the blame game. But the funny thing you said at the start is I tend to go offensive. You tend to go defensive. <laughs> right? My natural tendency is like we're losing market share, uh, which makes everybody mad at me. Your tendency, like many CMOs, is to be defensive because we get beat up so much, right? And the right answer is to be right there in the middle. Well, I
0: think what you said there is really important, which is like you got to have the perspective of like, hey, look, I'm the dispassionate analyst. Like, I got 15 ideas of how we can go about this, and I just think a lot of people, or maybe this is just this comes with wisdom over over the years, but I think like as a for me as like a first time marketing leader, I felt like, oh my gosh, we're behind on this number, and everyone's gonna hate me for it, and I'm gonna lose my job when like when you go to that bag of tricks, like what's in that bag of tricks is actually not just marketing tactics. It's never just like, oh, let's do a webinar or let's change the homepage. It's like, oh, it goes deeper than that. It's like, maybe we need to change our ICP. Maybe we need to try this offer. Maybe we need to tweak this product. It's like, it's very much rarely just on you as the marketer. And this is why I was interested in talking to you today, just your your perspective from as a ceo like you almost have to think like a ceo where yes your title is cmo but you're not just looking into like what levers does marketing have you need to be the change agent across the company whether that's influencing sales influencing product and a mistake i made was always trying to like put all that pressure on myself and thinking like yeah maybe if we go send six more emails right now we're going to get to our number but rarely rarely that's the case when you're like trying to tackle an issue like 5% close rate
1: yeah look i mean So yes, and to me, that's the beauty of this model is I don't feel any pressure to go tell everyone the answer. Because I think what you were doing as a first-time CMO was, there's a problem, I need to figure out the answer, and I need to sell everybody on my answer. And that's a recipe to get yourself in trouble, (laughs) frankly. I just want to show up and say, can we agree there's a problem? And- if you want to solve it, I have 15 ways. And by the way, the better a marketer you are, the more tools that are in your bag. I don't just have a hammer; I've got 17 different tools. All the ones you mentioned. We could change the product. We could change the ICP. We can do sales and sales tools, sales training, sales enablement. Right? We could change who we're generating leads from. I can fix this 18 ways to Sunday. The right answer is let let me and the CRO go offline to agree. I'm going to lay out all the different things I can do and what sounds good to them and me. We'll come back next week with a proposal. That's how you stay aligned to sales. It's how you take the pressure off yourself. It's how you don't get defensive.
0: Beautiful. And the last one is partner with the CEO, which I think is closely related to number one. And and there's a hundred other things I want to ask you. So I'm going to jump around a bit. I have some, some specific questions I got for you, but I want to ask a a broad one. And this is for you specifically one of the, so I run this community of 3,500 marketers. They all pay to be in it. Uh, it's a professional group of B2B marketers. And between the podcast and the community, I get a lot of questions. One of the number one questions I get about marketing is benchmarks. People want benchmarks, Dave. <laughs> they want to know the ratio of this to that, of salespeople to marketing people, of pipeline to spend, You know, of, of all these different things. And I was saving this to ask you because you've had a lot of perspective on this over the years on, on your blog. Do we need benchmarks? First of all, and why do marketers obsess over benchmarks? Then let's talk about some of the most helpful ones, if you have any.
1: So, yes, I believe marketers need benchmarks. I believe we always need to use benchmarks. I mean, the things that go wrong with benchmarks are when you don't slice them correctly. right? So you're comparing yourself to public companies when you're not. Or a common, another one, more subtle would be you're comparing yourself to different size companies. So you're a five million company benchmarking on eighty million companies. Another one is different track companies. You're a $20 million low-growth PE company optimizing for profitability and an EBITDA-driven exit in three to five years versus a venture-backed IPO-class company. And a lot of these benchmarks don't separate these. And you know, it might even be a founder bootstrap company. If you look at some benchmarks, they're actually mixing and they rarely let you cut it this way, or they'll cut by size, but literally you have to go look at the sample and go, There's founder owned bootstrap companies that are twenty years old in here, growing at, you know, twenty million dollars and growing at ten percent. There's PE companies that are maybe focusing on EBITDA more than growth right now. And there's VC companies that are all moonshots and they're all blended together in a random waiting. <laughs> Right, So, so yes, we need benchmarks, but we always need to understand what we're looking at and always kind of uh, almost be skeptical about what we're looking at and its applicability to us and how we slice it. I think we like benchmarks because we get asked questions by sales and finance. I think we use them partly as a defense mechanism. I think partly, good faith, we want to know how we're doing. Like, how do I compare to other people? I used to use, I'm never going to remember their names now, but one got bought by Forrester, one bought bought by Gartner with serious decisions And the other one, yeah, I would use them for like, you know, what's... Topo. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Topo and Serious Decisions. I used to use them a lot. Uh, There's one called OPEX Engine, which is more financial benchmarks, but some stuff. There's the Pacific Crest Study, which is more company-level metrics. There's RevOps Squared, which is more company-level metrics. But yes, I try to use benchmarks because, A, I want to know how I'm doing. B, I'm going to get asked, right, by finance and or by sales, so, I like benchmarks personally, but I'm never kind of a slave to benchmarks. I'm never, I don't rule the benchmarks or I don't let myself get ruled by benchmarks. You know, it's like an average family has 2.2 kids. So, honey, let's go try and have 2.2 kids, right? Can't do it, right? Doesn't even make sense to try and do it. So, we need to be thoughtful in our approach to benchmarks, but I think they're very important. So, the other thing you didn't talk about when it comes down to data is to me, just market research. So, I'm a big believer that. People today are pretty good about using benchmarks. They're very good about using internal systems data, but we've almost forgotten about market research. And back in the day, when I was first in marketing, you didn't have a CRM system. So you, you couldn't actually do all this internal analysis. So you would do market research to look at your funnel and just do the, you know, hey, have you ever heard of this company? Have you ever considered buying them? Did you ever try buying them? Did you buy them? Why or why not? Right. That used to be a market research exercise, not a reporting exercise off a of CRM. And I still think you should do that to complement your CRM analysis, because CRM, remember, only shows you the people you found. And what about all the people, especially if you're a startup, who never found you? What about that vast majority of people who never heard of you? They're completely omitted from your analysis because you're not looking at them. So that's my view. Yes, on benchmarks. Yes, on internal reporting. And yes, yes, on market research. In the market research example, are you talking about
0: actually... Hiring some type of market research firm or, or, or finding a way to do it on your own?
1: Yeah, proprietary studies typically cost 20 to 50K, right? But if you're of any size, that that's not a huge percentage of your marketing budget. And you can, let me just tell you the kind of things I would ask in such a survey. First, I would do a quantitative part where I am trying to look at the funnel, right? I get me and my top competitors and do awareness, interest consideration, purchase, roughly repurchase.
0: Oh, wait, wait, pause on that for a second. Yeah. I'd, I'd... I love that because I feel like um, that's the perfect medicine. That's the perfect like way to figure out what you should go and do, right? How many times do we just go and do marketing to all stages of the funnel, but you go and do this research and you're like, well, nobody even knows you exist compared to these five competitors, and so oh, well, that's going to tell us what our marketing should look like over the next three to six months. First, sometimes we just there's too many things to do. We don't know what to focus on. I love that.
1: Or the counter, which is the one I actually started doing this for. Nobody's ever heard of us right? If I had a dollar for every time the sales leader told me that nobody's ever heard of us, right? I'd have an island somewhere. And when you run the study, right? Both sides of it, you, you run the... And by the way, your CRM isn't going to tell you about awareness, right? So you have to run this kind of study to say, if I listen to sales, and this is what I talk about partnering with sales. I'm not a doormat. They, they used to call this tough love. When you had like, you know, teenagers in trouble, you'd give them tough love. That's the way I view the CRO, right? Okay. You're asking me for more awareness, but I'm going to go do some homework and come back and try and convince you it's not what you want because our awareness is actually fine. What's actually hurting us is our reputation or our consideration, or we're not making the long list or or whatever it is. So yes, I look at the funnel. I would look at buyer pain points, right? One of the age-old questions of marketing is what are the best pain points for us to go market around? I'd have a list of 15 pains, 10 pains that we can solve and rank order them. And then when I say, hey, I want to run a webinar themed on my last company, I'd say uh, mistakes in board decks, board deck preparation, sales would be like, well, I'm not so sure. I go, well, I ran some research and it says, this is it. And I might even research my customers and say, what do you use this for? Like, hey, it's the number one use case on our customer base. And it's a super high pain point amongst prospects. Let's go market on this, right? There's a bunch of other things you can go survey, but it's that sort of stuff that you're not going to find in in the internal reporting.
0: Just using myself as the example in this, I think the first time marketing leader in me would be like, I was no way I'm going to take 20, 50 grand and spend it on a research firm. Like, we'll figure that out on our own. But now, as I'm hearing this back and replaying my lessons and losses over the years in my head, I'm like, well, actually, no, that would be an incredible investment because I'm basically trading you 50 grand to have like the right playbook to go and generate millions of dollars in pipeline. And I just think that that's such a better way of thinking of it versus me trying to justify, well, what's the ROI on that spend going to be? The ROI is going to be figuring out our whole freaking revenue (laughs) revenue strategy.
1: Absolutely. And if you're really good, I mean, to, to me, I always said, look, I'm spending 5% of the budget or whatever to make sure the other 95 is spent more wisely. That's one way to look at it. Uh, the real marketing uh, guerrilla marketer asks 10 questions, they can turn into white paper on the back of it. So I get an asset out of it as well. I get a bunch of questions I'm going to use for my marketing planning, but I also get you know, state of the CFO, priorities, and financial planning. And based on these 10 questions, and now I've got a white paper and a webinar so I can have it all.
0: I love that 5% to get security on the 95%. I think that actually answers my benchmark question too, which is if I can answer this for you, it seems like, if you can carve out the budget to do it and sign up for a service, and I don't even know who does this today, whether it's Gartner or Forrester or Serious Decisions whoever, but it sounds like it's worth it to tap into one of those to get access to some of those benchmarks and guardrails, whether it's for headcount, budgeting, forecasting, different types of ratios.
1: Yeah, I think so. Look, I would, I would always try and do it at, at not terribly large scale because in the end, you're spending 20, 30, 40, 50K hopefully maybe 50 of these day and age, especially with Gartner and Forrester owning them. But you're getting data that's hard to get somewhere else. And you know, the alternative is a lot of Google searching and a lot of networking with friends where I mean, you can waste a lot of time trying to get those numbers and they'll be less credible anyway. Because you're going to say, well, what's a good MQL to S1 conversion rate? And you're going to go, well, according to my five friends who I asked, to 10%. And it's just, it's not as compelling. So in my mind, it's worth having the data. I always think about the, exactly that balance we talked about I must be willing to spend something to make sure the other, I used to call it measurement too, because the other question is how much do you measure your programs, spend on that? And I'd be happy with a 1090 ratio, frankly. So you could probably afford it earlier than you think and it'll make your life. And I was, I was glad to watch you kind of go, hey, wait a minute. When I was a CMO, this might have been a really good idea. <laughs> and it would have been, yeah, think of all the meetings. And when you just said
0: 1090 on programs there, you mean like you're spending 10% on something that's
1: good. To guide the other 90, yeah. Either the measure, to benchmark, to try and give you some idea. Because a lot of marketers are so proud they spent 100, zero. But it's like, well, how do you know you spent the 100 right? And you can say, well, I'm A-B testing. But if you're A-B testing the wrong hypotheses, you're not gonna find out. If the number one buyer pain point was something completely different from what you're A-B testing, you're, you're not gonna find it, so. Here's a
0: listener question. This is from Tom Wentworth himself. He says, Ask him how much CMOs need to know about SaaS metrics versus how much of that should come from the CFO or FPNA.
1: Look, I'll tell you a story one time. I have a very distinctive point of view on this issue, but one time at Business Objects, an investor was in. And they were, everyone was sick. Nobody could make the meeting. And it was, you know, somebody who owned like a million shares of the company. <laughs> and I was the only guy available. And it was like Fidelity or some, you know, big institutional money. And they wanted to meet and they said, well, the only guy we got available is the CMO. So you're going to meet them. Uh, and I did the meeting and the guy kept asking me all these questions and I knew all the answers. So at some point, the guy was like, are you COO or CRO or CMO? And I'm like, no, I'm CMO. <laughs> and I obviously always remember that meeting because he was quite surprised that I was the CMO and I knew all those numbers. I think the CMO should know a lot about SaaS metrics. And, and just the answer is it would be great if you could fill in for your CFO on an investor relation call. That would be the bar I'd set. Could you actually, if needed, in a pinch, <laughs> fill in for the CFO on an analyst relations call or investor relations call? And it means you're going to be pretty fluent in the numbers of the business. And I think it's only good for this, because now you'll understand, I don't know how to describe it, but a lot of the SaaS metrics, they help you like tune your car engine, right? They're not just about making investors happy and want to buy the stock. In fact, I I do a blog post on this called the investor versus operator perspective on metrics. And I think you should take the operator perspective because you're an operator. It's helpful to understand the investor one, but, uh, and it will lead you to different metrics, like investors like CAC payback period operators to me, it's less applicable because like, well, which part of it's broken? There's three parts of it. (laughs) And I don't know which one to fix. If you tell me, you tell me it's 36 months, I'm not going to buy your stock and I don't care why, (laughs) right? But if you tell me it's 36 months and my job is to fix it, I need to know, are we spending too much on sales, too much on marketing? Is the subscription gross margin too low? What's breaking the ratio? So yeah, so long story short, I think knowing those numbers report, I'll give you one other story. So when I worked at Salesforce, I worked for a guy who worked for Benioff And once in a while, I'd go to Benioff staff meeting, filling in for my boss. And I would spend like an hour memorizing a spreadsheet of numbers. Because I I think in kind of numbers-driven cultures, you need to have all this stuff in your head. If somebody asks you, what's the Service Cloud Pipeline in France, and you don't know the answer, I would argue that's like a career-ending move at Salesforce, right, and certain other companies. Like, they're not going to ask you 15 questions. You're going to get asked one out of the blue in a segue, and you need to know it. And, and I like those cultures because it means people are on top of the numbers and they understand what's happening with their business. So I like that as kind of an ante. Because if you don't know all those numbers, I don't know how you're making decisions, right? I, I kind of believe in guided intuition. Whereas if I steep myself in the context and I actually know what's happening and I can play 20 questions around numbers to demonstrate that to you and then say, look, my sense is we should go this way. Because I believe my brain is somehow kind of synthesizing all that and helping me get the right answer, maybe in a way that's not easy for me to articulate. So that's why I like it. But yeah, I'm a big believer in running by the numbers, making your team run by the numbers. Yeah,
0: I love how you got to that by having to be in that meeting and learning all those things. And it's almost like a training. I don't even know if it's like a training, but if if you have that as your baseline and then you can go put your CMO hat on, you're definitely going to be a better business partner. You're going to be more effective, shoot, I'm seeing this now in running, in running my own business. I look at the P&L differently than I did when I was at a company because it's my, you know, it's all coming from my credit card and my money. And I think having that understanding just forces you to do something different. So how would you go, if you're listening to this and you're like, man, that's a great idea. I need to go learn more about the numbers in this business. How would you go approach that? Do you go knock on the CFO's door, send an email? How do you, how do you get in there?
1: So I think, I mean, look, there's a, I'll start with a plug. There's a number of bloggers, including myself, who talk about metrics, right? There's a number of kind of personalities, I'd call them, on Twitter. Only CFO is a CFO one. A guy named CJ Gustafson is one. The SaaS CFO is another. Ray Reich is another. There's kind of a little metrics SaaS community out there. If you follow those people and the links they point you to, that's how I'd start out. The SaaS CFO even offers a training class, I think. So you can go take a class on SaaS metrics from him. So I think I I just want to try and get fluent in the subject matter. If I'm at a larger company, I would ask the CFO to send me financial analyst reports. So sell-side analysts write reports up on companies. And if you compete with one of those companies, or you're going to be one of those companies one day, or you're one already, Lord knows, get those reports. They don't often mail them to CMOs and marketing people, but make friends if it's a big company with the investor relations person, or the head of finance or the CFO, because if you the day you can read one of those and understand every word, you will have graduated, right? <laughs> and lots of people can't understand every word because they're, they're going to talk about guides and RPO and billings. And they're going to talk about all this stuff that's going to sound pretty foreign to you. But that, that is the language that the investors are looking at.
0: This will be like a quick hit section. I'm try yep. to get as much in as I can this is from a, a exit five member. What's your day? Uh, he writes a lot about uh, metrics and the explosion of MarTech. What's your take on brand?
1: I think short answer is brand is for later, right? Like the best way to build a brand of a startup is go sell some software. And when we get to 50 or hundred million dollars, call me back. And then we can talk about brand. I love that. <laughs> I love it. Okay.
0: And there next, next question. What's your perspective on category
1: creation? I think it's less important than it used to be. I think in the old days, the goal, the dream was to make a category, have Gartner print a quad and then go lead it. Now, I don't think people care as much about categories. Well, I can't even name the category for some of the more popular packages I like,
0: right? What's your perspective on lead gen versus demand gen?
1: I like demand gen. I'm not even sure why. I think leads are a little tainted because they're so far up funnel. You can argue demand's even higher, but just terminology-wise, I use demand gen. Not even sure why. What role
0: do you think uh, ChatGPT and these AI tools are gonna have in in B2B SaaS in the next five years?
1: I think two roles, one content generation and two search. They're gonna change search. Obviously we'll do the second one first, but all the work we do on SEO, and I'm not even sure how to do it yet. Like I I don't know how to SEO for ChatGPT. Like how do you get it? Imagine the ChatGPT search engine there must be a way. Meaning like, uh,
0: how do you make sure that you show up in ChatGPT search results? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, right? Just like we, we, you know, if somebody types in your category name today, you wanna be above the fold. Like what happens when you say ChatGPT, show me three financial planning and budgeting systems? It's gonna name three. The question is, how did it get there? And how do you get yourself on that list? So I think it's going to change the whole world of SEO on the demand gen side. And the web is kind of our number one tool for generating demand. So it's a huge change on the demand gen side. And then operationally, it's obviously a great tool for generating SDR mails, generating content, et cetera. So I think it's going to change the content generation business, and it's going to change really the web demand generation business.
0: All right, Dave Kellogg, I could have interviewed you for, for three hours. If you listened, I took a bunch of notes. I'm going to write these up. This will be in our podcast, but this was fantastic. Go to kellblog.com, K E L L B L O G.com. You can also follow Dave on Twitter, Kellblog. And I think one of the things that you said there is great. And I'm going to try to extrapolate a lesson from that, which is about learning SaaS metrics. And if you want to go deeper on that, I love the mental model of finding one or two people in the space and just reading like don't worry about following 10 and 15 different perspectives find one or two people and uh, like you've been that for me and so i think people can continue to follow you but i just appreciate all the knowledge that you've that you've put out there if you want to go more on any of these topics go and check out dave's stuff and make sure you tell him that you uh, enjoyed this interview on exit five dave kellogg thank you
1: so much for doing this thanks for having me Hey, thanks
0: for listening to this episode of the Exit 5 Podcast. If you're in B2B marketing and you want to grow your career, you should also go and check out everything that we have over at exit5.com. We've got articles, we've got videos, we've got templates. Plus, we have a community, a community of over 4,000 B2B marketing pros We're always adding new stuff. It's really becoming the number one place you can go if you want to grow your career and learn more about B2B marketing outside of what you're doing inside of your company every day. So check it out, exit5.com. And I also want to make sure I give a shout out to my friends at Hatch. That's hatch.fm. They produce this podcast. It sounds amazing because of the work that they do. And they work with B2B companies just like yours. They offer unlimited podcast editing and strategy for businesses. You can get unlimited podcast editing and on-demand strategy for a low monthly cost. All you got to do is just upload your episode and they take care of the rest. Go and check them out. It's Hatch.fm. Hello, hello, hello. This episode of the Exit 5 podcast is brought to you by Apollo.io. If you share a pipeline goal with your sales team, then you care about the deliverability of your team's outbound emails. No email visibility means no chance to get that meeting. This is the silent nightmare for marketers. We often don't even know that this is happening. The most common cause of it, it's actually an easy one to fix. You're not using the right tool. That's why hundreds of marketers at companies like Mutiny are switching to Apollo.io annual membership to exit five that's valued at $275 just for checking them out and the tool is free if you're not already a member this is a great opportunity and if you are and you want to learn more go to apollo.io slash e5